And you try to do it in such a way that you are faithful to the word of God. And here is what God's word describes. And I cannot fully understand this because it is beyond my capability. But there is one God and he is not divided into three parts. But he makes himself known in three distinct personalities yet all being the same God. There is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit, there is one God. But God the Father had a specific task that he performed when he planned and designed the creation and the events that are going to unfold in the creation. The Son spoke creation into being. He was the creator. He spoke, and all that came into existence, everything that was made, was made by Him. Then there is the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Son to convict the world of the sin of unbelief, of the need for righteousness, and the reality of a coming judgment, so that people's eyes can be opened to the truth of the gospel, they can trust Christ as Savior, and there is an administrative order of authority. The Father being the ultimate authority administratively. Under whom the Son submitted himself. Behold, in the volume of the book it is written, I have come to do thy will, O God. The Spirit being subjected to the authority of Christ administratively when Christ returned to heaven and sent him as he promised to be the guide, to be the comforter, to be the instructor. The Spirit of God is here now. Christ is too, and the Father is too. And this is where it gets really tough, because you have this administrative role of authority, but in reality, it is still a singular God. And it's the only way we can understand, when we understand that as best we can, what Paul is writing about in the remainder of this segment. Go back with me, if you will, and look at verse 26. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Oh, no, wait a minute. All things are put under the feet of the one who is under the authority of the Father. Now all these things are subjected to the Son, including death, which is the last enemy that will be destroyed. And then look what happens. He has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, the father is now not brought into subjectivity or subject to the authority of the son. The father's authority remains administratively. The son's authority now has put everything, or I should say everything has been brought under his authority, including death, which no longer has any power, which no longer has any dominion. It goes out of existence for those who know Christ as Savior. It is not there anymore. And then we read, Now when all things are made subject to Him, God the Son, then the Son Himself will also be subject to Him who put all things under Him, that God may be all in all. 
So when you get to that last phrase, what you have now is the re... Ah, this is the wrong way to put it. It's not the reunification. It is the elimination of the administrative authority of the Godhead. So that ultimately, as the Father puts all things under subject subjectivity to the Son, those things now are brought underneath the, the Father's authority as well, and then the Son, the Spirit, and the Father as the Godhead become the ultimate ruling authority forever and ever. Does that make sense? Let me tell you, this is part of the reason why we're spending so much time in this chapter. This is a heavy-duty chapter that really answers for us a lot of questions that we probably haven't even thought to ask. Don't you like it when somebody asks tough questions that you didn't even think about and you say, oh yeah, that's a good question. Well, Paul is answering those questions. And, and it's not really Paul, we know that. It's the Holy Spirit using Paul as the instrument. And so now what we have is, here is God's prophetic plan. There will be a resurrection. There will be a reign of Christ. And then there will be a relinquishing of all authority to the Godhead. That's probably the easiest way I know to put it. So now you have everything brought back to where it should be in relation to the creation, except for those who had rejected Christ and are now burning in the lake of fire. That's why the resurrection is so important. If it wasn't for this, we'd have no hope. And Paul tells us that. He's going to introduce something here that's really interesting. You're going to to scratch your head over the next verse, okay? Let's move on. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? What? What are you talking about? Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. We've thrown in another one. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You didn't realize that that was a biblical verse, did you? You know, you thought, well, that's just crazy party people who use that verse. No. The Lord says this. If there's no such thing as a resurrection, then that's what we ought to do. If there is no resurrection, let's party. Now, I'm not saying partying is wrong, but partying the way unsaved people party and the way we as believers party is like night and day. We have a good time. They get hung over. Won't go down that. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Verses 39 through 34, or pardon me, 29 through 34, 
give us the motivation we need if we embrace the reality of the resurrection. He begins by addressing people who don't even believe the truth. Now, when you read that verse about people being baptized for the dead, did that kind of just put a question in your mind? What, what, what's that all about? I want you to notice something. Do you notice the pronouns in that verse, verse 29? They, they. You go to verse 30 and look at the difference. We, I. You know what Paul is saying? There are people who don't even know the truth who believe that there is a resurrection coming. They're not clear on what it's all about. They don't understand what it's about. But they're going to do things even like getting baptized for the dead. And if there's no resurrection, then why in the world are they even doing that? Even people who don't know the truth understand there is a resurrection coming. So he's not telling us that we should be being baptized or baptizing people for the dead. He's just saying this. There are people who do that. They do that. If there is no resurrection, then why in the world are they doing it? He is basically giving them a little bit of a slap on the hand because there were people in Corinth who had begun to believe that there was no resurrection coming. And he's saying this, listen, even, even people who don't know the truth know there's a resurrection. Straighten it out. Come on, get your thinking together. And when you do... Here's what the reality of that resurrection will do. It will motivate you. How will it do that? He goes on to say in verse 30, all the way down through verse 32, that it's going to strengthen your resolve. If you go back to the last part of that verse 32, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. What Paul is saying is this. We would be absolute idiots if there was no resurrection to live the way we're living. If this is it, get everything out of this life that you can. Live for your own satisfaction. Let's just eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That would be the conclusion. But now you back up. And you begin to understand what he says. Do you know the reason I'm willing to do what I do? Don't you realize that from my point of view, I die daily. It isn't my life anymore. It's his. Why? Because He has redeemed me and He is going to resurrect me and I am going to be with Him forever. What makes it worthwhile giving up all these things that I could have in this life to be an apostle, to walk through life having made huge sacrifices, getting beat up? Do you notice the verse where he talks about if I fought with beasts in Ephesus? He didn't fight with animals in Ephesus. He fought with the unbelievers. They acted like wild beasts. They wanted to kill him. And on a number of occasions, he was flogged. He was beaten with poles. 
He was in prison. He went hungry. He even put his life in jeopardy by going to sea to carry the gospel to people that had never heard and he was shipwrecked and he spent a day and a night in the deep floating on a piece of junk hanging on to life. And then you ask yourself this question, why would he do that? Because there's a resurrection. That's why. Why do we do what we do? Oh, you, <laughs> you Bible-believing fundamentalists, you're a bunch of idiots. You are giving up all these good things in life. And I stand there and I say, yeah, because the day is coming, I'm going to be resurrected. And by the way, that is not being said with any arrogance. That is not with a, huh, look, I'm going to be resurrected. It's, there's an accounting day coming. And I'm going to stand before the king. And then everything I gave up for him will be worth it. Paul says, you want to be motivated to be willing to sacrifice? Then live in the light of this reality. You have a resurrection coming. You're going to stand before the king. And you're either going to stand before him to receive rewards at the judgment seat, or you will stand before him to hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. But you're going to stand at one of the two places. And if you want to avoid depart from me, I never knew you, then you have to come on God's terms to meet him the way he said we meet him. You come to me through my son, Jesus Christ, because he took your sin upon himself at the wonderful cross. And following his burial, he rose from the dead to prove the resurrection is coming. Why do we live the way we live? Because we're going to be coming out in a resurrection. And then he gives us one final thought. It's going to purify your life too. Down at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. See, what he's saying in that verse is there are some people who are evil company. And they are convincing you that there is no resurrection. You, you, you want to meet some of that bad company? Walk outside. Walk through town. Walk through your neighborhood. And ask people, do you believe that a resurrection's coming? And some of them would agree and say, yes, I do. But many will say this, oh, no, no. When you're dead, you're dead. That's it. And Paul is saying, do you understand that that philosophy corrupts good people. If you come to the place where you think for a moment there is not going to be a resurrection, you have corrupted thinking. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. Now what he's telling us is this. If you really believe in a resurrection, you're going to get your life in order. 
you're going to live a life that is pure and holy and clean before God. You are going to reject the philosophies of the day. You're going to reject that it's okay to live with somebody that's the opposite sex without being married to them. You will reject that. You will reject having a relationship with someone who is not your mate. You will reject cheating your employer. You will reject lying in order to advance yourself. You will reject the behavior that you have towards your mate that is absolutely dishonoring to the Lord. And you will love your mate. And you will respect your mate. And you will honor your employer. And you will maintain your marriage relationship. And you will protect yourself from that which is unholy. Why? Because you've got to give an answer for it one day. And you're coming out of the grave. And you're going to stand before the king who is holy, who is righteous. And in that day, you want to be able to stand there and say, it is because of Jesus Christ that I can even stand before you. It's his righteousness. It's not mine. And that righteousness is embraced when we receive him through faith and we acknowledge that our sinfulness has separated us from our God and that our unbelief has held him at bay until we turn from our sin, repent, and we reach out in faith and say, I need a Savior, I trust Jesus Christ, and I trust him alone. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He died for me. He was buried. He rose again from the dead. I am trusting him for my eternal life. And the Father says, now you have it. Now you got it. That's the truth. Let's stand. Father, what an incredible portion of your word you have given us in that letter to the Corinthians. Father, you set their thinking straight. And you will do the same for us as we embrace the truth of what you have revealed. I thank you, Father, for your word. We'd have no way to know any of these things had you not revealed it to us through your scriptures. We thank you for the Lord Jesus who took our penalty and punishment upon himself and died in our place so that we might live. I thank you that he is available to all who by faith will receive him. Thank you for making such a wonderful plan. Thank you, Father, for not making us rely on our own righteousness, but giving us the opportunity to accept that which you have provided. Thank you for the hope that we have, that settled assurance within our own hearts, that one day we will stand with you 
perhaps through the portals of death, but ultimately through resurrection. And Father, as we approach the day of our Savior's resurrection, let us do that with a new appreciation and a new love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.